We now go to that part in our worship service. After we have called upon God to join us in worship, we have declared His glory. We have confessed our sins. He has assured us of our pardon. We have offered ourselves as living sacrifices to Him. And now we go before Him asking. Asking of all of our needs, our wants and desires according to His will. Let us go before our Lord in prayer. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for such a great opportunity that we as your people not only gather with the great privilege of worshiping you, but also as your children we get to gather and ask of you. And so we come, O Lord, asking, asking with the Spirit in mind as he intercedes for each of us, but also as the Son sitting on the right hand of your throne intercedes for us as well. We pray, O Lord, for our own country and the civil magistrate that you have installed over us. We think of perhaps this morning, Mr. Biden and his administration. We pray, O Lord, that as we enter an election year and we think about all the prospects of who will fulfill this duty coming next year, we pray, O Lord, that whoever holds office next year, but who holds office today, would have their hearts, O Lord, pricked by your word that the Biden administration would reform itself in such a way to have greater fidelity to the moral law written upon all of our hearts. We pray this not only for the Biden administration, also for our own state and the administration therein, but all of our states. We pray, O Lord, that our leadership, our government, would not only represent us well, but that they would also act in a way that is honorable promoting peace and prosperity within our land, promoting right morality, seeking to establish a good kingdom, perhaps even on this earth. We pray, O Lord, that the American people would be blessed with worldly blessing as a good government can instill within any people. But we pray, O Lord, that you would guide this administration in that end. And when they fail, O Lord, as every administration does, we pray, O Lord, that you would convict them of their failures and that in that you might be glorified. We also pray, O Lord, for those who are lost. We think of those this morning who are lost in other religions, whether they be cults of Christianity, thinking of Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, whether they be from the Judeo-Christian mold, those who are lost in Judaism and Islam, or whether they be pagan altogether. And we think of perhaps some of the Eastern Oriental religions. We pray, O oh Lord, for all of those who are lost. We pray for those who have been deceived by Satan and have worshipped the wrong God or wrong God. We pray, O Lord, that you would convict them of their sin, that you would send ministers to their communities to preach the true and living God. And we pray, O Lord, that there would be true transformation, not only in those who do not know you, but in society itself. In that end, we think of the Mother Kirk. We think of Scotland this morning and the Taylor family as they seek to plant churches in the U.K., we pray, O oh Lord, that as they have begun this new year with the endeavors of planting a new church, we pray that you would bless them with prosperity, 
prosperity and growing in numbers and spiritual depth. We pray, O Lord, that their church would be a blessing, not a mere physical blessing to the community, but a true spiritual blessing, reclaiming perhaps the land of our spiritual heritage for Christ. We, O Lord, lament the state of Christianity, perhaps in our own country, but even more in Europe, in the UK, particularly Scotland. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would remind the tailors of your sufficient care for them as they seek to preach the gospel to a people who once knew and loved you. We pray, O Lord, for our own sanctification, though, in light of that. We pray that as we think of a new year, we are renewed by perhaps interests. We're probably renewed in resolutions. We pray, O Lord, that this year we would grow as a people in our study of the Bible. That we would become people that learn and devote ourselves to greater amounts of time to prayer. That we would devote ourselves to a greater growth as we partake of the sacraments themselves. That we would devote ourselves this year, perhaps more than any year, to the ordinary means of grace, the ordinary ways by which you grow your church in Christ-likeness. May providence, O Lord, grow this year. May we as a people devote ourselves, hasten ourselves to better structures, to better routines, to better devotion, to your word, to your kingdom. But we need help also, O Lord. There are many families in our own congregation this morning that are hurting. We pray that you would send an extra portion of your spirit to them now. We pray that and uplift our families as we have in every one of our families wayward family members. We pray that you'd give us great wisdom, discernment. That you'd give us patience even as our patience seems to run out at times that you would provide your shoulder as we lean upon you when we sometimes know not what to do. Be with our congregation. Extend your spirit to us as we seek, O Lord, your wisdom and guidance. Be with our church also, O Lord, as we've been nomadic for so long. We pray, O Lord, that perhaps this year we would see a place of permanent residency in some shape or fashion start to take place. We pray, O Lord, for your grace upon that. I know many of us are eager to move from where we are, to start building, to inhabiting a place that we could call our own. We long for those days. O Lord, grant our prayer that maybe this year would be the year where we see that, that great ask begin to be fulfilled. And be with those who are sick among us. My own family is dealing with a bout of crud. We pray, O Lord, for all those who are downcast and feeling melancholy and sick. Be with us. Supply us with all that we need as we worship you and rest in you on this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. It has been a few weeks since we've been in the Gospel of Luke. A few weeks ago, we 
studied John chapter 1, and last week I was on holiday visiting family in the northern part of the reaches of this state. And so we are now getting back to the Gospel of Luke, and we're in chapter 7, and we're going to finish chapter 7 here. A few weeks ago, three weeks ago perhaps, we saw an update on John the Baptist, perhaps his doubts as Jesus came in a way that he did not expect. And then even before that, Jesus raising the widow's son. But now today, we see another common event that we have seen so far in many occasion. Today, though, we see Jesus offer more forgiveness. More forgiveness. And we see that when Jesus offers us forgiveness, it is often rightly, correctly met with joy and love for God. But not only joy and love for God, as we'll see today, also joy and love for one another. So stand with me in reverence and awe as we hear from Luke chapter 7. We'll begin in verse 36 through the end of the chapter. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to him, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and another 50. When they, had not, they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears, and wiped them with her hair. And you gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she had not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who forgives little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go. In peace, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Uh, forever. You may be seated. Sorry. 
The world will know that we are Christians by our love. I recall the acts of love of the Puritans during the 1600s. Perhaps as you think of the Puritans, you use the word negatively, thinking of the puritanical Puritans. But the Puritans of the 17th century and the 1660s were known for their love. You see, during the 1660s, England was suffering one of its largest, worst plagues that it had experienced. John Bunyan, who was imprisoned at this time, was actually released because of how bad the plagues were. The king and monarchy had been reestablished. The Church of England, though largely abandoned during part of the earlier parts of Reformation, now thriving, Puritanism on the decline, being imprisoned for it, plague around. The Puritans during this time were known for love. And you might wonder, well, why? Why were they known for their love? It was because during the plague, as they were released from prison, they went to the hotbed epicenters of the plague. As the Ang Anglican priests fled to the countrysides, leaving their parishes to die, the Puritans went into the city, swooping in, caring for the sick and dying, and offering them Christ. They would not be home for long before they would go on mission to share Christ with those who were physically dying. They themselves <laughs> would die from that same plague. But many would remember their love. What enabled the Puritans to love so fearlessly is the forgiveness of sins that they had experienced in the Lord Jesus Christ. They so passionately imbibed the forgiveness of Christ that they had no other thing to do than to love in this self-sacrificial way. We see perhaps in some ways that same sort of characterizing love in this sinful woman in this passage as she experiences the forgiveness of sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. She loves Christ deeply. She loves Christ sacrificially. Jesus, at this time, is invited to a dinner party at a Pharisee's house. His name is Simon. This is not the Simon that you would know as Peter. Simon was a common name, as common as perhaps John today. Went to Simon's house. But at this time, in this age, being invited to a dinner party, what is a communal event? Perhaps in our own day and age, we live our lives behind our walls. Everything is kind of private. You don't come to my house unless I invite you to my house. But in the ancient Near East, life was public. When you had a dinner party, those who would be invited would come and recline at the table, but people would meander in and out regularly to meet the guest of honor, to see what was going on, what was all the fuss about. Kind of reminds me, the turn of the century before we had air conditioning units in the south, every house had a porch on the front lawn. And on that porch in those hot, dastardly hot summers, people would sit upon their rocking chairs, rocking all day, seeing neighbors across the street, kids playing and such, and people would come and go, talking and talking and talking. Life was kind of like that in this time period. And so this lady, this sinner, as she catches wind that Jesus is in town at this Pharisee's house, she, like every other person in the community, thought, I want to meander in and see too. But even more than that, I want to devote myself 
to him. As they rest, as you perhaps imagine, at the table reclined, laying there eating, a lady of sin comes in to bless the Lord. In this context, this undesirable woman, a woman that they would have probably casted out quicker than you could ever imagine, stays and approaches Jesus with her devotion. With great forgiveness comes great love. That's what I want you to see here today. With great forgiveness comes great love. And I want to show you in this passage what that love looks like from this woman. The first thing that we see in this passage is that with this love, we become generous. You see this perhaps in verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with oil. This is an unexpected visit as you look down at this passage, so unexpected that Luke uses the word, behold. He's saying, look over there and see. This is unexpected. It is a surprising aspect that someone would join the party with an alabaster flask of oil. You see this woman. We don't know her sin, though the Pharisee makes sure that we know it was great. It is somewhat irrelevant. We don't know. Could she have been a lady of the night? Could she have been a cheater? Could she have married some notorious person in the community? I don't know. Our minds often go to the worst, but we do know that she is a sinner. But in the midst of her sin, we see her brim with generosity. Perhaps we are recalling the other parts of Scripture where Jesus is also anointed with oil. We think right before his death, someone deposits an entire life savings worth of perfume upon him to prepare him for death. This is kind of like that, but it is a different event. We don't know the value of this alabaster flask. Was it something truly sacrificial? I have no idea. But it was giving. She gave what she had to Jesus Christ. Think of the intentionality of what she is doing here today. I don't know about you, but I don't walk around town with alabaster flasks. No flasks, actually, if you're wondering. No perfumes. This lady intentionally walked out of her house on mission. She heard Jesus was in town. And I have this for him. There's an intentionality. When Jesus forgives us, there's an intentionality. We are drawn to him. We are drawn to him with our generosity, with our self-service. And notice as she enters the home, she falls prostrate before him. And that generosity is evident in the actions that we see in this passage. They go boom, boom, boom. Standing at his feet, she began weeping. She was crying. She was using those tears as she let down her hair to clean his feet that were dirty. Her, his dirt-filled, cracked feet from all the travel. She'd stoop down low with her own tears, with her own hair, 
wiping his feet and kissing them and anointing them with oil. The actions of kissing and anointing in this context is an imperfect action, which means that it was continuing. That since she had entered that home, since the end, to the end of this passage, she is continually kissing and anointing. She's not stopped. She's so devoted, so focused on her mission to be with Jesus and to be generous in offering him love and care that she does not stop. She doesn't ask Jesus, is it okay if I do this? She just goes in lowliness to serve him. You can see the abject devotion as she, Jesus reclines and she tends to his needs. Why was she crying? We don't know. I can't cry on cue. I hardly cry ever at all. Could it have been they were tears of thanksgiving? Were they tears of relief? Were they tears of repentance? I don't know. Perhaps they were tears of joy as she generously gets to be before her Savior. When you think of feet in the ancient Near East, there is naturally a negative association. Feet were not a positive marker. You didn't think of feet as something you wanted to associate yourself with. I don't want to associate myself with feet much either. But in their society, the symbolism of a foot was so distasteful and so repulsive that you wanted nothing to do with them. I mean, you could think of a dirty, cracked, caked-filled sandal. Who wants to deal with that? You see in the New Testament, people dusting their feet off and leaving you see in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, of people putting their feet upon the necks of their enemies to show that they have conquered them. Their dirty, smelly, war-torn, war-torn feet. There's a negative, there's an insult to the foot. The Jewish slaves never even cleaned feet. It was so insulting to them. It was even beneath them. And we yet have a woman here lower herself to a place of even a Gentile would be forced to clean the feet of Jesus. I once saw a missionary give a, a missions report and update as we often do in the church and at the end of that update she wanted to convey how she'd be standing on the word of God in her ministry to the Jewish people which was quite ironic in, in some regards because in order to convey that truth she put the Bible on the ground and stood on it. And you might not think of anything of that um, but the congregation I was serving as a deacon in was predominantly, it had a, quite a large minority, I should say, of Middle Eastern people. And when this dear missionary stood on that Bible, you could hear the gasps in the congregation. They were appalled. How could this lady who says she loves God stand disrespectfully on the word of God? The Middle Eastern culture seems to carry itself further 2,000 years. The negative nature of feet. We're talking about this because it reveals the generosity of this forgiven woman. That she stoops down low and gets her hair dirty as she wipes and cleans the cake-filled feet of the Messiah. But in juxtaposition, we see the lack of generosity from the Pharisee. Why were Jesus' feet dirty? Well, we see in verse 44 clearly why they were dirty. 
They were dirty because, look down, then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. I couldn't even clean my feet myself. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she had not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. You see, those who are not touched by the Lord Jesus Christ may not be generous to the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you remember as we've been going through the book of Luke, the many experiences that Jesus has had with the Pharisees, and not one of them good thus far. Perhaps those presuppositions, maybe that is in the back of the Pharisee's mind as he offers to have Jesus come into his home. He knows where he stands with the Jewish community. We have heard him heal and forgive paralytics. We have heard him heal on the Sabbath. We've heard him do all sorts of things. He seems to dine with all sorts of sinners. The Pharisee would have known that his friends have accused Christ of being a drunkard and a libertine. Pharisee did not roll out the red carpet. Though he invited Jesus over, he did not roll out the red carpet for him. And we see that with his lack of generosity. He's offered no hospitality, which is a cardinal sin in this society. And so he comes dirty. The sinner offered to clean Jesus' feet with her hair while this Pharisee left them dirty. The sinner offered to love Jesus with her kisses and affection. And the Pharisee likely, with all his other brethren, had contempt and filled slander from their mouths. The sinner anointed his feet with oil. And the Pharisee laid his head dry. When you accept Jesus' forgiveness, you turn from this Pharisee into this sinful lady. Because she's no longer merely a sinful woman, she's redeemed. Redeemed in the presence of Christ. And so what I want you to see is with great forgiveness, there is great love. The first way that that love is shown out in this passage is that we become generous. The second way we see this bear out is that we become grateful. There are three G's this morning, and the second is grateful. Verse 30, or verse 40, I should say. And Jesus answering said to Simon, said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and another 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? In, in my guesstimation here, Jesus has cultural connections to the Midwest. He shoots this Pharisee straight. There is no sugar on the statement here. I have something to tell you. In the South, everything I would experience would be coded. I would sometimes think I'm getting a compliment, but it was an insult. Here in the Midwest, it is not that. An insult is an insult, and a compliment is a compliment. And here, Jesus has a bone to pick. And so he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. He says it just like that. And I'm sure reluctantly, as Simon sat there, just said, say it, teacher. Get it off your chest. You have a bone to pick with me. Say it. And so Jesus offers him a parable. We've not seen many parables thus far in the book of Luke. Perhaps a short one in a few passages ago. But this one is a fairly simple one. There are two, 
people who owe a money lender some money. 150 denarii, another 500. To put it in understandable terms, one is the value of my Ford F-150 and the other is the value of my home. I'll let you guess which is which. These people who owe this money lender, one a car, one a home, could not pay. And he decided to cancel the debt of both of them. Which one would be more grateful? Which one? If one of you desired to pay for the rest of my note on my car, I'd be grateful. But I might love one of you for the rest of your life if you paid off my mortgage. There's no doubt. The more grateful person is the one that pays off the mortgage for you. You would love that person endlessly. You'd certainly go to that person's house and wash their feet with your hair. Because none of you would have thought of that before that. But I tell you what, I will wash your feet with my hair if you pay off my house. Unthinkable. That's the type of abject devotion this woman, sinful woman, has. That is what Jesus has done for her, paid off her mortgage that she couldn't pay, her mortgage of sin. It's a beautiful parable, but it is not a unique parable. In the Talmud, there's a simple parable that Jesus is actually parrying off of, and it goes something like this in the Talmud. It says, to what may it be compared? To a man who is a creditor of two persons. One is a friend and the other is an enemy. Of his friend, he will accept payment little by little, whereas of his enemy, he will exact the payment in one sum. And the idea of the Talmud was trying to teach the Jewish people is that God is going to bring judgment to all people. Fortunately for you, you are Jewish. And so he will only enact payment by payment. He will give you uh, 60 months, 0% uh, uh, interest on this loan. But for the enemy, God gives a 10% loan and our current mortgage seems crisis. And you have to pay it all within seven years. That's how the Talmud understand it. Jesus is turning it upside down and he is saying, forget all of that. There is a better deal than the Lord incrementally giving you judgment. And that is the deal that is offered through me. I will forgive your sins. I will forgive your sins whether you are friend or enemy if you come to me. Whether you are a Jewish man who only owes 50 denarii who usually you'd expect gets the better deal, forget the deal. I have an even better one. I will forgive all of it. And not only that, those enemies who you thought you'd, God would enact one sum payments towards, I will forgive all of theirs as well. One of my favorite examples of this sort of idea, this grateful, generous, generous idea, is found in the hiding place. I'm sure many of you read The Hiding Place, the great story of Corey Ten Boom. Every pastor has an illustration of The Hiding Place, this great act of forgiveness that Corey Ten Boom offers. Corey was a family in the Netherlands during World War II in her, ho in her home. They housed Jews, and the SS found out that they housed Jews, and so they rounded up their whole family and put them in concentra uh, concentration camps. And while they were in concentration camps, concentration camps, one of the siblings dies. 
And as the story goes, I won't replay the whole play before you near the end of the story as Corey is recounting those days in a congregation, one of those SS soldiers that she had remembered was at that meeting. And you can recall as Corey writes it in her own words as he comes up to her asking her for forgiveness. And it's so delightful having it in written format because she says in the book that she pauses. And you'd imagine what happens in such a pause. You are reflecting. Your mind is going over all the events that you have ever had with this person and none of them being good. Of the great travesty and pain that this person has inflicted not only upon you, but perhaps even upon the death of your own sibling. And after a brief moment of pause in the great redemptive story here, she forgives that soldier. There is gracious gratitude that Corey has, not for the soldier, but for the God that has forgiven her. You see, the depth of God's love in the life of the Christian by how we respond to those who have enacted injustice upon us. Like Corey's story and the story that we have in this passage, it's the linchpin of the gospel. The great love that Christians not only show to their God for his redeeming work, but what they show to one another. But we also see, perhaps again, the juxtaposition of the Pharisees' ungratefulness. We see ungratefulness from the Pharisee in both verse 39 and 43. Now when the Pharisee invited him in, he said to himself, if this man is a prophet, he would know who this and what sort of woman this is, for she is a sinner. You see the ungratefulness. He he does not grasp the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because he's unable to grasp the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ, it turns to bitter contempt. How could this prophet be a prophet by allowing this sinful wretch to wash his feet with her hair? There is great ungratefulness. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand the forgiveness that the Lord Jesus brings. He's still operating under that Talmud parable. He just wants the best terms of judgment doesn't sense the forgiveness that we see here. It appalled him. It appalled him because he had not experienced the forgiving Christ. But even worse, we see in verse 43, and Simon says, the one I suppose, I suppose, for whom it canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says to him, you have judged rightly. I don't want to think too deeply into the psyche of Simon. But as I read those faithful words, the one I suppose, I suppose, the words of a child, I suppose you're right. You see the ungratefulness, reluctance, as Jesus reveals her love for him. When we experience the almighty forgiving power of Christ, it is met with love. It leads us to becoming more generous. leads us to becoming more grateful. And lastly, and probably most importantly, it leads us to becoming more godly. 
You see, the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't leave this sinner in her sin. In verse 48, he says to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table began to say among themselves, Who is this, even that he forgives sins? And he says to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he forgives us of our sins, doesn't say, Go on living your wicked sinful life. We sometimes perhaps think of this as progressive sanctification, the act of becoming holy, more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We become more godly. When we are forgiven of our sins and we love the Lord Jesus Christ, we become more like Him. We become more godly. Perhaps you are discontent with your own godliness. You wonder, I wish I would just grow quicker. But we all do grow in godliness. We see this throughout the scriptures with all sorts of Christians, all sorts of believers. As imperfect as our Bible stories may seem at times, you think of Moses striking the rock in hasty anger. You think of David killing Uriah and sleeping with Bathsheba. You think of Abraham handing over his wife to Pharaoh. The Bible is full of examples of imperfect people. But what we see also as you continue to read those stories is that those people also experience the forgiving work of Christ. And in that forgiveness, they grow in Christ-likeness. They grow in Christ-likeness. Your pastor isn't perfect either. I don't have to tell you that. Sometimes pastors like to recount all their deepest sins from the pulpit. I'll spare you of that laundry list, but I'm not perfect. But I sometimes think back when I read a passage such as this of my own coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I was a youth group, middle school, and after a message, we would always go up to the elders' consistory room. In the Dutch tradition, you don't have a session room or an elders' room. You have a consistory for some reason. We would meet there at this obnoxiously long table. It always reminded me of the Last Supper kind of Michelangelo tables, and I always sat in the same seat. I always sat right to the left of the teacher, wanting to learn more. And I remember in sixth grade when the Lord pricked my conscience and I first experienced the forgiving work of Christ. I remember the very next thought almost was, I must now become a pastor. It's quite odd in some regards. I'm not saying it's a foolproof idea, but that was the only thing I could think of. Now that the Lord has saved me, this skinny-jeaned emo rocker skateboarder must become a pastor. It was my dream from sixth grade on to be even standing here today. Before that, I was a jaded middle schooler. My parents had just divorced. I hated life and everything around me. But the instant work of the Spirit led me on a path of godliness. Sixth grade. The good news is, I'm still living this last point. Your pastor is not perfect. He still grows like that sixth grader grew all those years ago. Your parents still grow. They are not perfect. They might be able to spell all your words and do all your math until you get to a certain age. They are not perfect. They, too, grow in godliness, and so do you. 
And we see that the Lord doesn't leave any of us on hospice care. He brings us, revives us. And what does he say at the close of this passage? He says, now go in peace. You are forgiven, now go in peace. Go in shalom. He doesn't tell this sinner to go and keep on sinning. He doesn't say go and keep living your life how you used to. He doesn't say go in sadness. He doesn't say go in self-pity. He says go in peace. Go in peace. A novel statement, perhaps a nice way to say goodbye, but it is a good reminder for all of us. When the Lord forgives us and we have great love for him as we grow in godliness, he sends us out and says go in peace. He sends us out today saying the same thing out of this passage here before us. As we enter and rest the rest of the evening, go throughout our lives throughout this week, says, go in peace. You are a redeemed sinner. Though this Pharisee may judge you harshly, you are a new creation. Now go in peace. For those in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are like that redeemed sinner today. We are redeemed because we are forgiven. And we are forgiven because the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins. And so now we are called by him to go in peace. Where there is great forgiveness, there is great love. And so I hope that you today, perhaps more than any other day, would sense that love now. We sang it just a few moments ago. I want to leave you with that one last stanza out of Wesley's hymn. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for the forgiving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O Lord, that upon each and every one of our hearts, as you convict us of our sins, that you too would remind us that you say to us quite clearly, your sins are forgiven. Now go in peace. May that be the emblem of our hope today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.